You're listening to the Charity Champions Podcast. Each year, TFNB Your Bank for Life chooses six nonprofits from around Central Texas to recognize as Charity Champions. Tonight's Charity Champion is... Champions enjoy live on-field presentations at Baylor University home football and basketball games, online broadcast and print marketing exposure, and world-class leadership development through 360 Solutions, all at no cost to the nonprofit. In this podcast, we want to get to know our charity champions a little better. We're bringing those who help and those who have been helped into the studio to hear the stories behind the champions. On this episode, Jesus Said Love. It was about two weeks to Good Friday, and so we went to our church and said, hey, we want to take Easter bags to the strip clubs, and they said, okay, sure. (laughs) Brett and Emily Mills started the nonprofit to work with women in the commercial sex industry in several Texas cities. The life expectancy of a human trafficking victim is seven years. Many of our women were trafficked, but they don't know that they were trafficked. They haven't had language for that. And so they don't know that until they start talking and engaging their own story. And now, let's get to know our champion. Today in the studio, we're with Jesus Said Love. Can you guys kind of introduce yourself so we can get to know you? Hey, I'm Brett. And I'm Emily. And we're married. We are. And we co-lead and co-direct Jesus Said Love, which is a ministry that exists to awaken hope and empower change to women in the commercial sex industry. What does that look like for people who aren't familiar? Well, 15 years ago, it started as a grassroots effort. We began doing outreaches strictly in strip clubs. And that began really a four-year period where we were collecting stories and information, kind of doing grassroots level really kind of data collection on a marginalized people group. After that four years, we realized, you know, this is a really marginalized population that doesn't really have a voice in our communities. We need to put some structure around what we're doing. Every program that we've developed since then has been directed by our women. In other words, they give us what they need. They have given us the programs they need. They've given us our ideas. So now we run a fully operational headquarters here in Waco, Texas, with outreaches that happen across six Texas cities. We have the access program. We've got Stop Demand School. We've got an AA recovery group that happens on Wednesday nights for females only. So it's in a lovely and a social enterprise now, lovely. So it's amazing. This is a very specific type of outreach. How did this come about? Oh, man. <laughs> you want to tell the story? Uh, yeah, let me tell the story yeah. and then you jump in. Sure. So, uh, so Emily and I are worship leaders. We travel around the country and we worship for churches and conferences and stuff. And so we were in Austin and we were doing a women's conference. And turns out there were some women who were coming out of the industry and started to tell their story. And we were so moved by this, we'd never heard of anything like this. And the premise was uh, they met some ladies from a church who decided to take Easter into the clubs. On our way back to Waco, Emily said, we have to do this. And I said, do what? And she <laughs> said, we have to go to the clubs. And I said, what do you mean? What are you? <laughs> this is foreign world. It was about two weeks to Good Friday. And so we went to our church and said, hey, we want to take Easter bags to the strip clubs. And they said, okay, <laughs> sure. So we put some announcements out. We got all the stuff together. And then Emily and a friend went. And that was the very first outreach. Mm. So what was that very first outreach like? Can you kind of describe it for us? Sure. I think that anytime you're walking into the unknown, which I was, I didn't come from the industry. So I was walking into the unknown and the week before I was terrified. Part of the reason I was terrified is because there were so many misconceptions about 
these women. There were so many misconceptions about the clubs. There were so many misconceptions that created fear in my mind and in my heart. So the week before, I had every fear you can imagine possible. I had bad dreams. I woke up at night and I just thought I'm going to get beat up. I'm, somebody's going to like stab me. Uh, the women aren't going to be receptive. You know, they're going to hate me. Uh, everything you can imagine. And first outreach, nothing like that. Well, even, even the club manager. T- so oh, yeah. they went the night before to ask permission and, you know, showed the club manager, this is what we want to bring. And he said, you can come, but Girls aren't going to like that necessarily. Well, he, he said, I can't guarantee. That's what he right, said. Right, right, right. He didn't say they weren't going to like it. He said, I'll let you come in, but we can't guarantee how they're going to respond to you. And I think what's interesting about that is that because of these misconceptions, he had misconceptions about me. I had misconceptions about him. Ooh, that's good. And the beauty of incarnational ministry, when we're willing to do life with people that maybe we haven't intersected before, but we're willing to live among and do life among them, fear is gone. That's, that's the beauty of, of how Christ lived. It was an incarnational type of ministry. As I'm hearing that story, have you ever heard it said that if you don't ask, the answer is always no? <laughs> and I'm thinking true. you could have said, there's no way this manager is going to give me permission He'll say no mm-hmm. and just live with that lie. Right. Yeah. yeah. And then there's no chance for the truth. There's no chance for the truth if we don't pursue the question. And I think sometimes we don't. It's like you have not because you ask not. Right. But also sometimes we have not because we're not asking the right questions. Right. Boldly. So, yeah, yeah. Okay. So you march into the strip club. Yes. Well, maybe not march. <laughs> I don't think you, I marched. You don't march, but you go into yeah, the strip Yeah, we go club. in. Yeah. Okay. And so is there a break or is there, I mean, how, how does that work? What's that yeah. look like? What we guaranteed is we, we operate front door communication, full disclosure. We showed the manager our gift bags. He knew we were Christians. He said, why are you coming in there? We said, because we believe God loves you. And we believe the church has probably done a bad job at showing that. Mm. We were very candid with why we were coming. And he said, okay, so how much does this gift bag cost? We said nothing. There's no strings attached to it. It's a gift. We're, it's a gift. We're not selling anything. Okay, so, you know, what's the catch here? And we said, there's no catch. We just want to offer an act of kindness, love, no strings attached. Uh, okay, so he kind of wrapped his mind around that. And then he said, well, you can't mess with my customers. And we said, absolutely not. We do not want to interfere with your customers. But you and I both know that a happy dancer creates a better club environment. We can make the girls happy. Mm-hmm. We can be there in the dressing room, help them get ready if they want. We can provide conversation. We just love to get to know them. Mm. It's true. Moods lift when there's relationship and pure kind of connection. There's no money exchange. We're not, we're not paying for an entrance fee even. He's not getting anything. We're not getting anything. But in a sense, we both win because – we get to know them and they get to know us. One of the things that's interesting about that, and I think the reason why he said, you know, what are you selling is because there's people that come to the clubs to sell things to mm-hmm. the women's yeah. shoes and things like that. And so this was like the first moment somebody had come to say, it's free. 
there are no strings attached. Yeah. Are the girls suspicious at first? Some are. I think like anyone, I mean, I think there's so many different dynamics. I think it's like any of us. If you go to a party, if you go to a bar and somebody's really forward with you and you're an introvert, you respond differently. So there's all sorts of personality dynamics already at play, right? We're human. But then there's the dynamic of who are these girls coming in? Are they competing with me? Are they trying to get my job? So we did notice that what helps us is to have a diversity of age on our team. Mm. Some of our best club team members are older women. There's no threat. There's no competition there. They're moms. They're grandmas. I mean, it's awesome. The girls love them. So you need more grandmothers. We love grandmothers <laughs> to go in the strip clubs. We love it. And they love it. It's a maternal kind of connection that they can have. And uh, yeah, so there were some there was some skepticism naturally when we first went in. But I think there's a lot to be said for showing up. Mm-hmm. And we consistently showed up. We said we were going to be there. We continued to be there. And that built trust over time. Do you think there was a certain amount of shame that some of these girls felt like, I don't want you to to help me. You're part of the church and I feel shameful at this moment. Yeah. Like I said, I mean, there's so many misconceptions and fears and we practice non-judgment. We believe that is a core of who Christ was, that when he saw the woman caught in adultery, he didn't judge her. He went down and lifted her head and looked at her eye to eye. He didn't shun her. He didn't shy away. So, you know, we see women half naked, fully naked. And we're not ashamed of that. We're not threatened by that. We're not judging that. I'm not asking these questions. You know, what on earth? What would make you? What kind of woman are you to be doing something like this with your body? There's a reason they're there. It's either to make money, to feed their kids, or they believe this is the only job opportunity they have. Some of them, a few that we have met, are there because they like it. But when we start talking with them, living life with them, there's usually another dream that's been kind of buried for a long time. Mm. And so our tag of awaken hope and empower change, awaken hope means to rouse from sleep. Hope is just almost this intangible feeling that I was made for something more. There's something more that I'm here. You know, it's the antithesis of fear. And so to awaken hope, sometimes it's rousing from sleep some of these dreams and desires that have been long trapped inside of them, inside of us. They have helped awaken my hope in humanity, in society. This is not one-sided. This is this is a both and. So I'm assuming your hope would be maybe they would be able to, you know, you're meeting them where they are. So if they if this is what they truly enjoy doing, you're just there to bring hope and joy. And if if they don't, you're trying to give them show them what other options there are. Is that right? I believe the commercial sex industry is an exploitive industry. Hmm. There's no doubt about that. That that's what we believe. That's what we we think the data and the research proves that this is objectifying and exploitive to women and culture. So If they, though, want to stay in it, it is not my place to try to drag them out Mm -hmm. because it's got to be self-motivated, self-initiated. When we find those hopes and dreams that are there, I've always wanted to be a lawyer. I've always wanted to be a, maybe I'll start with a paralegal. Maybe I'll, maybe I need to go back to school. Then that's what we want to help them find because usually what drug them into or, or got them into the sex industry, whether it was curiosity It was on a road to something, and it was a step to somewhere. And so it's kind of like, where is that? What was that first step? Do you think there was some apprehension 
by the managers at first because they thought maybe you're trying to convince these girls to do something else and that's bad for his business? Well, I remember, Brett, I remember one of the club managers telling me the industry's not forever. He told us, he was like, listen, I know this is a revolving door. I mean, Mm -hmm. we got about, you know, some of them have been in here for 10 years, give or take, but about every six months, we'll see them try to get out and then they'll come back and then they'll leave and then they'll come back depending on when they need money. So he knew this is a revolving door. I think once we were able to demonstrate consistency and the fact that we were coming every month, that we were not trying to take clients away, that, that we built trust and rapport with management. And so then what would happen is management would call us and say, hey, we've got a girl. We don't think she needs to be here. Can you help her? Um, we think there maybe is some dark situation going on. I can't help her. Can you? So, and then we had clubs calling from other cities going, we've heard about you. We heard from this manager in this city that you guys are doing this. Is there any way y'all can come to our club? And so I think all of that was the result of us just, you know, head down, plow to the ground. Let's be consistent. There are no strings attached and we're we're just going to come and love you. Uh, Why do I feel so surprised to hear that managers are calling you? Because it seems to me that's inherently against their self-interest. Well, it's not always against their self-interest. Okay. Okay. Because if they have a woman who is consistently bringing drugs into the club, she's consistently showing up high and undercover walks in. Right. That club can get fined or shut down. Okay. For prostitution or, or whatever. Those, if he's got a pimp in there who's trying to traffic girls right. and he doesn't want his license, his SOB license, and he doesn't want an ordinance being violated. He doesn't want that. Okay, He's got a self-interest. If he's wanting to run a clean operation, he's going to call us and say, Hey, can you come pick this girl up? We had, we had one um, club manager call us and this was in Dallas and she had been dropped off there night after night for about a week by this gentleman that never came into the club. She was just dropped off at the front door, came into work and, and left. And she was kind of new. She, she kind of gave the story. I'm new to the area. I don't, I don't really know where I'm going to land. The club and the women, see, the women got suspicious. Who is she? Who is this guy dropping her off? And they started trying to get details. They, they realized she's being pimped. She's being trafficked mm. and she's possibly a minor. So that club manager immediately called us and called our team in Dallas and said, I need this girl picked up before her pimp comes back and I need her immediately out of here, taken to a safe home. So we got her a hotel room for the night. We worked around the clock to secure a safe home for her. And that's due to, I mean, the management working with us. We, wow. we would have not known that. It wasn't even our club outreach day, mm-hmm. but because we'd worked on trust with that club, that manager was able to actually advocate for one of these trafficking victims. That's an aspect I never even thought of, yeah. is that they want to run a good establishment. I mean, in, as, as well as it can be, they sure. don't want yeah, to have I mean, problems. It, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a legitimate business. $3.2 billion dollar industry. Yeah. This is a business. I mean, it has regulations and things like that. And so, you know, truth be told, there are, you know, you remove the moral side and, you know, there's some who don't think it's objectifying and they feel like it's art or... I had a club owner tell me one time, I'm doing the same thing you guys are doing on this end. I'm providing these women a job mm-hmm. who wouldn't normally necessarily have an opportunity to have a job. And, you know, we could argue the morality of that thought. But at the end of the day, he truly believes that. That's, you know, that's his truth. Right. So it is what it is on that side of things. It, it is a legitimate business. I do like how you guys are going in and saying, how can we fill your need? Not, I want to preach at you. Oh, oh. 
Has that ever worked? <laughs> I mean, ha, are there any, when we look back at history, are, is there any crusade that we go, it was awesome that Protestants killed Catholics and Catholics killed Protestants? I mean, is there any kind of crusade that we look at in hindsight and think this was really good for humanity or no? Do we learn from, uh, we may need to rethink that whole you know, zeal. You know, what's interesting taking it back to a little Waco history here. We did some research on the whole reservation thing. You know, the Waco was the second red light district, legal red light district in the nation Hmm. back in the day. And, you know, from 2nd Street to 5th Street, it was called the reservation. That's where all the, you know, card-carrying licensed prostitutes were required to live there. Had no idea. People coming across the, yep, people coming across the suspension bridge, you know, driving their cattle and stuff like that. They'd stop there. and There's a video on our website. That you can look at if you, if yeah, you go to it. Yeah, absolutely. So the, the interesting part about that is there also came to town this traveling preacher, and I'm blanking on his name. He was a Methodist minister. Yeah. And he held rallies. And so then this Methodist guy came along and realized we need to reach out to these specific people. Now, this is like in 1880 Turn of the century. And, and so he started doing like specific ministry to those women and their children. They were called two street kids and they weren't allowed to go to school with everybody else's kids. And so he started doing ministry there and then he got kicked out of his church for reaching out to those people. Hmm. It's so fascinating because when we look at oppression and even in our city, it's fascinating. The women, the two street women, as they were called, or the women on the reservation had to only walk on the sidewalks a certain time of day. They had to enter stores through the back door. If they went outside of the reservation in daylight, they had to be escorted. And again, they couldn't walk on the sidewalk. They had to go through the back door. So there were all sorts of oppressive, but they had to pay tax dollars. So they paid over the years that prostitution was legal, the equivalent of like half a million dollars to our city for infrastructure. Hmm. Oh my gosh. I had no idea about any of this. Yeah, it's It's fascinating. It is. Is there ever a context where you can imagine telling one of these girls the story of Jesus dealing with the adulterous woman and ending the story the way we we see it ends where Jesus says, go and sin no more. Hmm. Could you ever imagine a context where you would tell that story with that ending? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think we live that context with them. I think that when when they come into our doors, the first thing is that there's love and belonging. Mm. There's engagement. There's love and belonging. But there's also responsibility for where we've offended society, where we've offended ourselves, Mm. where we've offended others, where we've abused drugs, where we've whatever those sins are whatever they are whatever they are we have to own them i have to own mine she has to own hers and that's the only way we don't develop this victim mentality right and many of them have been victimized so it's a super hard i might have my own story of victimization as a child and so what's hard is when you've been victimized you seek power and usually how you seek power is to try to offend you you become an offender Mm -hmm. in some way and and you try to justify that because of all the bad that's happened. And so you ha- this is all I can do. This is what I know. And we have to remove that. And so when Jesus says, go and sin no more, I mean, first of all, do any of us sin no more? Nope. <laughs> do we need now, help? Yeah, now, try. Yes. Try. yeah, now you've gone to meddling. Exactly. <laughs> like, like, am I... Have I stopped sinning since I, you know, started to follow Christ? Mm. No. I think, though, when Jesus said that, and I mean, we can't read Jesus' mind, right. but 
the content. I think that's a hopeful thing. I don't think that's a dead gummit. Don't you go, you know, don't you go sin anymore. It it is. Well, it's a hope. It's like, do I yeah. have to do this? It's empowerment. It's He's saying, a, you don't, you know, you can go and sin no more. You yeah. have that ability. And yeah. I'm the, I'm your, I'm your way. And, and it's a wrestling of you're going to continually sin. And yet you're going to continually find forgiveness yeah. in Christ. Right. This kind of leads into the hopeful part of this conversation, because I know based on past conversations with you guys, what you do with the ladies that move along with you and receive counseling. Uh, there's a lot of things that you build into their lives. And I was hoping you could tell the audience about that. Yeah. So we launched a new program last year called Access. And we just tried to build a program that, that had the interests of the women in mind. You know, they, as Emily said earlier, a lot of what we've done has been influenced by them. It's been programs that they've said, hey, I wish I had this. And then we go, okay, well, let's together build that. And so we came up with an eight-week program called Access. It, they earn a living wage stipend while they go through it because we realized to ask someone to go through Monday through Friday, nine to three kind of program, you've got childcare expenses, you've got you know light bill and things like that. And so we wanted to try to make it as easy as possible. So we built in a living wage grant they get if they complete the course. And it covers everything from leadership skills, nutrition, health and fitness. We discovered through research that 69% of our population struggle with PTSD. That's the same rate of men and women coming off the battlefield. And so one of the ways to manage your PTSD is through uh, physical activity. And so we built in the health and fitness. We built in some, on Fridays, they go and do an activity outside. They've done paddle boarding down the river. They've done bail ropes ropes course. course. Mm -hmm. Yeah, equine therapy. Um, That was a trip and a half. The story's coming out out of that deal. (laughs) But then we do financial planning. We have a parenting class. We partner with other organizations in town who have these programs. So, for instance, the Methodist Children's Home has been a great partner. They come in and help do parenting skills. We do nutrition and cooking where they actually learn how, you know, healthy recipes, how to shop for the healthy stuff. If they're on food stamps, how to use your food stamps to go after you know, the nutritional kinds of things. Not the ho-hos. Ho-hos and honey buns. Darn. So it's very practical. There's spiritual element to it. I think it's every Monday morning they come in and kind of start their day just centering, trying to listen to God's voice. What does that look like? And so it's just a beautiful, holistic thing that has really been grafted into what we're trying to do. We also have partnered with the Advocacy Center, and they provide a counselor specifically for human trafficking victims in in McLennan County. And Mm -hmm. so our women can qualify for that counseling. Some of them, this is interesting because the life expectancy of a human trafficking victim is seven years. Many of our women were trafficked, but they don't know that they were trafficked. They haven't had language for that. And so they don't know that until they start talking and engaging their own story. What led you into this industry? Were you groomed? Was there someone? We have one woman who had two children. When we met her, she was emaciated. She had tried to kill herself a few times on her job as a prison warden. After she left the club, she decided she wanted to be a prison warden. Well, that almost reengages her trauma. And what we found out as we started talking about her story and suicidal thoughts and things like that, she was trafficked by her mom from the age of eight Mm. for drugs. She didn't know her mom was trafficking her. In fact, her mom was still in her life. And so she was the oldest of eight children. You know, the hope is that I got to tell her, you've beat the odds. You're a living, breathing miracle that you are still alive. There is hope. So it's just been an incredible journey. Yeah. So access is a bridge, 
from where they are to transition into where they would like to be. Right. Absolutely. And and what that looks like is some are entrepreneurs and some are workforce kind of people. Right. And so we want to direct them in those opportunities. And so if it's in you, if your dream is to start your own company, I mean, I can think of three or four stories right now of women who have been like, I've never had anyone believe in me, but I've always wanted to make body creams and mm. bath bombs and things like this. We want to give them an opportunity. And so you know, we're trying to create programs that if you're on an entrepreneur track, then we can come alongside you and help you build a business plan, you know, a pitch and how do you get investors and can you, you know, maybe you can apply for a micro loan from us and, or I don't want to start my own business. I just want to work not in a strip club and I want to have a living wage job. Mm -hmm. Well, let's do some job. Let's do some interviewing skills. Let's talk about a resume and here's what you do when you sit down in an interview, because here's the thing I said, you know, 69% struggle with PTSD. We had one woman, we'd gotten her an interview with a, a real job, quote, quote, a living wage job. And so she went in for the interview. Guy walked into the office. He shut the door. As soon as he shut the door, she triggered. Mm. She immediately went back to the VIP room where she was assaulted. Mm. And the tragedy is because of that, it paralyzed her and she didn't get the job. She got up and left immediately. And so it's a real thing that these women are dealing with. And so if we can provide an environment to help them navigate those issues, then it's, you know, I think it's a good situation. One of the most exciting things is there is a company that we are working with who's going to be starting a textile business here in Waco called Revive USA. He's a textile engineer. And so he's wanting to bring the textile industry to Waco, which is really incredible. But he didn't just want to open a company. He doesn't just have this great business plan. He wants it to have a social impact. And he specifically wanted a social impact with human trafficking and sex ex- victims of sex exploitation. It wasn't happenstance, but we met. We began to talk about our passion and vision. And they said, well, maybe we won't just start this company here. You know, it's like a $3.2 million startup or something. And he said, uh, we'll build a safe home too for the, for the women. And I said, no, we don't need your business to have another nonprofit that's competing in Waco for over tapped donors and the size that we are. We, hmm. And do you know, have you worked with this? Have you ever run a safe home before? Have you ever run, you know, he says no. And um, so I said, why don't you run a business? I'll do what we do. And you help me create sustainability from a revenue standpoint so that we can grow. I mean, we've been working together. It's it's an incredible opportunity for businesses to collaborate with the work that we're doing so that our women have a safe environment to work in, have a safe place to fail, for for a company to be willing to learn about our population and create an environment that will sustain that is remarkable. I mean, that's just a different kind of company. I bet you also get a better response when you say to a girl, you know, not only will I help you develop these skills to get a good job, but I know somebody who can give you a good job. It's all about that. It's it's these again, this we discovered 15 years ago. This is a segment of our population that we have marginalized, that we have stiff armed, that we've said, "Eh, no, if you have on your resume, you worked in this strip club. Are you kidding? Or it's it's smarmy people that hire you who then ploy and you know, take advantage of you Mm -hmm. again. So the kind of quality jobs are often lacking for them. So we work with Hillcrest Second Chances Program. We One of our women is just doing incredible there. We work with Hole in the Roof. They're always willing to put our women through a resume application, but at Chick-fil-A. But it is hard for our women to land jobs. It's still hard. It's still hard. It is. I mean, you have to think of of their journey in kind of this linear sort of thing. 
And if, you know, if they're just coming out of the industry and they're coming to terms with their, their pain and their, you know, however they've been victimized, you just can't expect this switch to go on of, okay, well, I'll go work at the bank and, you know, everything will be great. You mm-hmm. know, we have women who, you know, the, again, PTSD and they have this moment where they punch a hole in the wall because they get so angry at work. Well, that's, I've never punched a hole in the wall, but I've also never gone through what she's gone through. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's this, it's this notion that we, we have tried to build partnerships with companies who are willing to take that kind of situation on. And sometimes you get burned. I mean, mm-hmm. we've had stories where, you know, women just quit showing up and so they get fired, but they go through that experience of getting fired. So they come back to us and we kind of work through that with them. So mm-hmm. it's almost like, you know, in recovery, you take two steps forward and you may take three steps back and then you take four steps forward. So it's not about, for us, it's not about, oh, shoot, she fell off the wagon or, oh, she got fired. It's, okay, here's an opportunity to learn. Let's keep moving forward. And we celebrate the wins. Yes. I met with a girl yesterday and she said, I'm going to have to quit my job because of childcare and gas money. The company doesn't pay for her gas money. And so she's like, this this isn't going to work. And so she said, I, I guess I'm just going to go back to the club. I said, do you want to go back to the club? No. What do you want? Can we stop right now? And can we just, can we pray? Can we sit? Can we listen? And let's just see what God says. So we sat in my office. We sat and prayed. I held her baby. And I prayed over her and and just asked for God to show her what he wanted. I said, what are you hearing? She said, I'm getting impatient. She said, I need a job, but I know I don't need that job. I don't want to go back. Why would I go back? And I said, how long have you stayed clean and sober? Over a year. I was like, that's amazing. Don't throw it all away because you've got to quit this one job. It just means we got to find one. You know, life, life isn't fair. I've got circumstances. You've got, we got to keep, we're going to keep working. It's not going to get hundred percent easier all the time. It's just not, but we get stronger. Life doesn't get easier, but we get stronger. I was thinking it's probably difficult based on the kind of money they could make in the club to say, no, let's step outside of that. You have a long road of maybe training and skills development to get a job that can pay comparably. And it may be difficult for them to kind of say, okay, I want to go down that hard road. It is hard. And here's what, here's what I always say to frame that money. Some of them have made lots of money. So my question when they come to us is, where is it now? Hmm. What kind of money slipped through your hand? What kind of lifestyle did you have to pay for that you couldn't hang on to anything? You could have had millions flow through your hand and be left with nothing. Is that the kind of job, the kind of money that you want to have? So it does reframe things. You know, wow, I've been working in the industry 10 years. I've had all these cars, but none of them were in my name. They were someone else's that were loaning me to look good or look a certain way. We had one girl and she was just like, we, we helped her find a car and it was kind of a junker. It was old, mm-hmm. but it's, it's what I drove when I first had to buy my own car, you know, kind of thing. She said, I've never had a car this terrible, but I've never been more happy about it because my name's on the title. <laughs> I was like, I know. So dignifying, you know. Who are these girls? I know you said there's a big diversity, but when people think about are these uh, single mothers, are yeah. these people that have just kind of, you know, are they high school graduates? Who are these people? Yeah, I think the target age group for the sex industry, as far as strip clubs and, and legal working quote, sex work, is 18 to 25. So they're looking culturally at grooming. The porn industry and and social media starts grooming at an earlier age than that to get women sexualized so that 
this kind of work would seem appealing. This happens all through media magazine. It's just songs. It's over-sexualization. So 18 to 25 is that target. We deal probably with the 25 to 30-year-old is probably our most reached group. 80% of them are single working moms. So across Texas, 70% of all human trafficking victims come through the commercial side, meaning money is exchanged somehow. So either a strip club, massage parlor, escort service, online dating, there was some sort of currency and commercial act uh, for that human trafficking to happen. Uh, so we're, we're, we are intersecting that. And then most of our women do fall below the poverty line. I think statistically, I could be off on this, but years ago we read that it was somewhere only around 3% of women in the commercial sex industry made 50000 or over a year. It's a cash job, and it's a job sometimes where businesses aren't requiring valid IDs. That's one of the things that I would like to see changed is that there's more regulation on who is working. Do they have a valid registered ID? Is it fake? Do they care? Who's overseeing the business so that the women aren't punished, but the business gets penalized for allowing unregulated kind of women to to work? I think that, you know, we see strip clubs and the industry on TV and movies, and it's kind of portrayed in this, they make a lot of money and they're having a blast and this, that, and the other, Las Vegas, woo But in real life America, it's not always like that. Mm -hmm. The majority of the clubs that we're in, you know, there are significant poverty issues and generational poverty. Yes. Um, you know, they they have come from families who have been in deep poverty for generations. And so all they know is I have bills. I can go to the strip club because I have a record. I don't have yeah. a valid ID. Mm-hmm. I have four thousand dollars in speeding tickets. And if I go get my ID, they're going to arrest me. But I have, I have kids. I have five. <laughs> I have five babies hmm. that I have to take care of uh, because I have a CPS case open. So I got to have cash to put food on the table. So the quickest thing I can do is go to the strip club, get my debts taken care of, because that's the, that's the mentality is I'm just going to do it for two weeks, pay off my bills, and then everything will be right. But everything that happens along the way, you know, you end up staying. A lot of people don't know this. Dancers pay to dance. So there's this thing called a house fee. Hmm. And so, you know, on a, on a Tuesday night in Waco, Texas, if you don't make – your house fee and tips because maybe that's a slow night. Well, then you have to come back the next day because now you're in debt to the club. And so it's kind of this, this indentured servitude, if you will, um, from a, you know, from that kind of perspective. And yeah, I mean, mean, a majority of the women, um, do come from that situation. And so we're trying, again, that's part of the awakened hope. It's no, you don't have to buy all of your food at the convenience store. Mm -hmm. You can go to HEB or whatever, grocery store you have the power to do that let's let's show you how to do that you mentioned that um they have kids what percentage do you think of women you work with have children 80 percent oh wow Mm -hmm. so they're they're thinking of i'm not doing this for me i'm doing this for them yeah and women in who are doing commercial sex their children then become in one of the top four risk factors for hiv aids um and so that becomes another public health kind of issue that when we look at setbacks of the industry, that's a set, that's a big setback for women with children. What percentage do you think of women that you're trying to help 
are just dancing versus maybe doing other things that are even more illicit? Um, I will say this. Every single one of our women has been propositioned for more. There is not one woman who has not been asked or offered uh, more money for doing more things. Mm-hmm. I know a few of our women who were propositioned and did not take those offers. And the trauma drives deeper, the deeper you get into using your body for an act of commercial pay. Mm -hmm. There's something it does to your brain that inherently says, then this is what I'm worth. So most of our women have engaged in some sort of prostitution, whether it's meeting clients outside of the club or I had one woman tell me he just, you know, everybody knows the rule. And I'm like, what's the rule? And they're like, well, if I meet this guy five times, then he's going to require sex. So I'll meet with him four times because he pays me $200 every time I go on a date with him. Hmm. But I won't go on the fifth one because then then he's going to ask for sex. I would think another consequence of all this type of work is that they probably have difficulty having actual relationships with people they care about, men they care about mm-hmm. outside of this. I think one thing, I, there's a couple of things that come to mind in terms of uh, relationships. And number one, we need more men. We need more men in the fight for the humanity of all women. We need dignified men who know how to look and think and treat women with respect. I am every day grateful for Brett, every day grateful that they get to see and engage and talk with a a smart Mm. man who protects them. We had some guys at the building the other day who'd come in with a girl who was just doing some computer work and she brought these guys with her. He he texts me and he's, I was in my office, he was in his and he said, there's men in the, in the building. And who are they? Why are they here? I don't know. I think this person brought him with her. So the rule is that unless they have an appointment, or unless they, you know, know someone there, they're they're not allowed to be there. You can't just bring men up to our building because we work with a really at-risk population. And so I'm meeting with a client in my office. He's seeing this going on, and I said, handle it. And he goes out, and he says, you, you guys need to get out of here. He said, and I'm not trying to be rude, but you don't have an appointment here, and we just we can't allow guys in the building. And the woman I'm having the meeting with says to me, I'm so thankful for him. It makes me feel so safe that you guys do this because I know other agencies where it's just I'm scared all the time because I don't know who's there and what they're going to say to me and if they're going to ask me for anything when I leave. And so anyway, we need more men in the fight. And the other thing is that this industry immediately sets women and pits women against one another. Women are fighting for customers. So it makes engaging as females really hard because you don't know if you can trust them. And so there's a lot of push pull there. You know, you want the female sisterhood, but then they're cutting you off because they went and cheated with your client, your boyfriend, what have you. It's just, it gets messy. So everybody seems like a potential threat, men and women. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, going back to what we talked about at the beginning, trust is probably our greatest currency because trust is so broken in their lives. That, you know, that's what we try to do. It all starts somewhere. Somewhere there was a setup. Somewhere in the family that they were, you know, raised in or cultivated in. Somewhere there's there's a brokenness there. There There is. I mean, I, I could fight all day long with 
certain people who say, no, there's not. But you know what? There's brokenness in my family, too. So anybody who's trying to claim they had a perfect family that just led them to stripping and prostituting and no, I want to say a bad word, but that's crap. (laughs) That's, That's not true. And so there's brokenness in our sense of belonging. There's brokenness in our sense of what family is. And that's what we believe the family of God offers. It's, a, it's belonging. So you talked about needing more men that are advocates for women, yeah. like Brett here. Yeah. Do you st- yes. And like you for even... Sure, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, I feel like I want to be. Um, <laughs> and I feel like I am to a certain extent. But do you feel a cultural shift right now with the whole time's up you know, type of movement going on? Why don't you speak to that? Yeah. I mean, I listen, I think it's time for men to start being men. And what I mean by that is not caveman kind of men. Mm-hmm. I think it's time for men who are willing to stand up for what's right. And what's right is not objectifying people. This idea that men have needs is just silly. Yeah, we have needs. Everybody has needs. But, but the fact that we take those needs out on some you know, just a beautiful woman walking down the street. And I, I was watching this show last night called Undercover High School. And, you know, they send in these adults that look like high school kids to just kind of, you know, see what it's like to be in high school today. And, you know, they're showing text threads and, you know, I want to do this to her. And so at, an, at a young age, these kids are learning women are not people. They're objects for my affection and my own gratification. And so we need men who are willing to stand up and say, that's not being a man. I mean, just straight up. It's not, this isn't a religious thing. This is, knock it off. She's a person. That's somebody's sister. That's someone's mom. That's someone's daughter. I will never forget standing in the parking lot of a club um, and this nice car pulls up and about five or six handsome, good-looking, well-dressed guys get out and they saw me and the other guy who was with me waiting on, we had a team in the club doing outreach. They walked over and they, they're like, "Hey, man, what's up?" And there's some hot, there's some hot girls in there, and I said, "There's some beautiful women in there, and the, most of them are friends of mine." And so, if you're going to go in there, don't touch them, tip them really well because they're going to go home to their babies and have to put food on the table for them, because most of them they don't, they're really not interested in you. They're interested in your money. So, because I value them, when you go in there, I need you to make sure that you're kind to them. So, tell me about you. <laughs> and he goes on and oh says, well, we're, we're baseball coaches from Houston. And I was like, oh, this is going to get real good. <laughs> and uh, so in that moment, we just had this kind of self-aware checkup of those are people. And you saw everything in their countenance changed because for them, it was like, we're going to go look at, you know, a Let's piece of... Let's go use the women. Let's go look at a piece of whatever at the strip club and get our needs met because we're away from our wives and we can do that right now. And hmm. then they encountered me and I put humanity on these women it's hard to go into a strip club when you've just been told that's somebody's sister or that's a mom that's a game changer yeah the thought popped in my mind just now as you're telling that story i don't want to be crass but it's almost like uh these guys felt like they were walking into a zoo absolutely Mm -hmm. absolutely behind the bars Mm -hmm. were these women Mm yeah i mean you you think about society i mean we live in a hyper sexualized culture from marketing to music to all of these things, it's just sex, 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 sex. There is nothing wrong with sex. Sex is a beautiful thing. But when we pull it out of its context is when it kind of gets wacky, right? So we're training people to buy cologne because there's a half-naked woman selling that cologne. 
Or we go to a club in Vegas and we put women in cages dancing around because that's cool. Well, we've now put a woman in a cage. We put lions and tigers and bears in cages. Mm-hmm. I mean, what is that communicating? Mm-hmm. Well, it looks sexy. There's a way to look sexy and not put a woman in a cage. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I love the way things look, and that matters. I'm not asking for us to be pilgrims, <laughs> but do we really have to put people in a cage? And so, yes, they decided we're going to go to the club and we're going to go see these people and we're going to have fun and we're going to get drunk. And it doesn't matter because she doesn't know me and I don't know her. And We you can know. use one another. Again, it's just this idea that it, it removes humanity mm-hmm. from the whole equation. And it leaves, it begs the question, what are we searching for? Why is that Houston group of guys, when they're away from their wives and they can have quality time with other men, why are they so afraid of connection? Why do they have to go to a strip club and not talk to each other and just look at other women to use why can't they connect? What's going on? You know, so it begs the question of where are we going to meet those needs, to fill those needs? And we believe God's designed for us art. We're communal beings. You know, we, we need each other and we need to connect with each other. I think we've got to, you know, train younger, younger kids, younger guys, how to view women and that their value is not in their body or their appearance. Their value is in who they are. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're seeing this from the top down where, you know, all of the you know, the college sports issues we're seeing. Um, and then the Olympic. The, al- the Olympic. Th- I mean, just we could just it's like a case study of the view of women currently. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, there's the argument of, you know, well, what about false accusations? Well, there's not many of those statistically. So let's not let's not even go down that road. But we just need we need men who are willing to stand up for women and not because women are weak. Don't hear me. It's not a, this. The women are strong. I believe in gender equality. I don't think that means sameness, but I do believe we're all equal. Obviously, clearly, we're, we're different from that from from women, but we're all equal there. And so, I think we gotta have guys who are willing to just stand up and be in that conversation. Yeah. I kind of think too that the burden to bear, you know, when there's been a population that's been long oppressed, the same with the African American community, it's unfair to put the burden on them to to seek change and progress. To take the first step. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's it's like you wonder, you know, like, why? I, I, and I hear from women. Well, I, I don't have to march to prove, you know, that I'm a woman. And there's all this battle and dialogue within the feminist kind of community of, well, can you be a feminist and be pro-life? Well, can you be, do you have to be this or that and fit into that box? And I think there's so much inner dialogue going on that we can get so focused on that that we're not looking at it from the perspective of that this is about humanity. Mm-hmm. This is not just about a women's movement or hashtag me too or times up. This is a human issue of how are we looking at humanity? It's the bigger picture, I think. Okay, so yeah. uh, volunteers, how could you use help? Do you need help? We do need help. We need volunteers in our Texas, all of our Texas cities. So we've got Dallas right now. We've got we Temple Colleen. Uh, we are needing a, a leader right now uh, to really revamp. Our, our leader there has stepped down. Waco, for sure, and Houston. So what we're looking for is if you go to JesusSaidLove.com, you can click on volunteer, click on the city you want to 
volunteer in and how you want to be involved. We also need alliance partners in every one of our cities. And those are women in the community who are not willing to fix, solve, or correct any problems, but are willing to meet with women who want out of the industry or who just want support that are still in the industry to meet with that alliance partner as they kind of move along in their journey. So they meet once a week or twice a month and get coffee, get to know one another, and they they sit and talk and and pray and encourage one another, and um, it's just a powerful connection. Okay, is there any other initial obligation other than a cup of coffee? Well, she gets training. Right. Oh, yeah. Okay. I mean, there's a training process for sure that happens. And how long does that take? The training process is usually a, we have videos that will train them, and then we'll have an in-person training that's three to four hours. Okay. Um, And then after that, they will be paired. Usually there's two alliance partners per one woman in the industry, and they will kind of tag team develop a relationship together and just help as she rebuilds her life Mm -hmm. and it's it's organic so you know as much as the woman wants to invest and as much as the woman coming out of the industry wants to connect they're not providing case management they're not i mean we're we're doing that they're not counseling we have a counselor they are folding them into their lives maybe they do a play date with their kids together maybe they go to the zoo you engage them life on life why is this important because it's it's belonging and it's demystifying who our women are. It is taking fear and putting love right smack dab in the middle. It's really cool because it's dropping all of the boundaries and the walls are off the community. So, for instance, on a on a kind of a bigger scale, our we have a fundraising gala called Wild Torch, and you have everyone from the mayor and the congressman and clergy to women currently in the industry and women who have left the industry and everybody in between that spectrum. But nobody knows who is who. Mm -hmm. And we're just all there to have a great time and raise a lot of money to awaken hope and empower change in the lives of women. And so that's what we want it to be like. So if you come to our house on any given day for dinner, you you never know who might be there. (laughs) <laughs> she may or may not have been a dancer at some point in her life. I mean, New Year's Day, we had everybody at our house, and it was a blast. Mm-hmm. And there, you know, there's no stigmas. It's it's not us and them. It's just us. I would also think with the alliance partners, their only friends may be also in the industry, so it may not be a yeah. helpful environment. Thank you for, them. for saying that. Yes, because one of the things that we do know is that relationships outside of the club are really hard to come by when you've when you've lived this life for so long, or maybe you've been raised in generational poverty, you don't know. I mean, your alliance partners are bridging the gap. We don't call them mentors because there's just a power differential Hmm. in that term. And they necessarily haven't asked for a mentor, but they do need a partner. And that, that creates an equal power stance where it says, you know, I'll hold your hand and and you hold mine, but I'm not going to do this for you. And you're not going to do this for me. So there's not codependency there. Hmm. Yeah, I think that uh, one of the things about the Alliance Partnership, if I can call mm-hmm. it that, is that you have already vetted the ladies that need the relationships. Mm-hmm. And so that kind of takes the scary part out of it, because how would a lady that goes to church every Sunday meet someone and right. you are offering them that opportunity? Yeah. yeah. And I'll say that this this ministry is 
equally about our change Mm. as it is about theirs. It truly is. And for every alliance partner we have ever had, they have come to us and said, what a gift. Okay, can you tell us a story about that? Um, I think of one woman who grew up very much a Christian home, but had a heart to really serve. And she began um, helping a little bit, like watching one of our women's access partners, watching her child. So as she watched the child, she just said, this child was, you know, you think in your mind, oh, this is going to be an unruly kid. This kid's going to have all these issues. They're just going to be crazy and wild. And and she said, Emily, she was like, she loves her kids better than I love my kids. Like, She's so patient with them. And I've learned things from her. And Mm. what a gift this alliance partnership has been because it's helped me have patience with my own kids, you know, Mm. learn some things that she's taught me. So she's been incredible, been Mm. really incredible. So how many ladies do you need to step up to, to become partners that can be involved in the relationship that we're talking about? We'd love to have 12 to 15 okay. uh, right now because we've got seven, uh, well, six that are needing alliance partners right now. And then we will have an upcoming access program that will have six to 10 more women go through the club. Um, so I think if we had 15, maybe 20, because we do like to have two alliance partners, that would put us on a good trajectory. Okay. And it also sounds like your access partners uh, they do something a little bit different. Sorry, our access participants. Okay. I didn't mean partners. Okay. Those are the women who've been through access, and they are paired once they graduate with an alliance partner Okay. or two, depending on, on what they want, on what they need. Sometimes they'll say, yeah, I'd love one, or maybe I'd like two. But once they've graduated our program, they then get paired with an alliance partner. Okay, and so the access program uh, do you have some volunteer needs there? You mentioned something about a lady that was uh, babysitting. Yeah, child care. We do have a child care team okay. in each of our Texas cities. So that's on the volunteer page, too. You get criminally background checked and all that kind of thing. Right. Any other volunteer needs for the access program that people can, you know, they may need to have a certain skill, but what... what is there some help there they could give? As far as volunteers, we really just need sponsors okay. because it costs for every woman to go through the program. Tell us. Okay, so it costs now $5,000 for each access participant because you're not just paying for their curriculum or learning and all the materials. You're paying for their wages. You're, you're giving them a scholarship. This is a scholarship fund. Right. And so when you pay that $5,000, you are scholarshiping her to go through the eight weeks. So we definitely need Sunday school classes, churches, businesses that say, I'm going to put $5,000 down because it will reap an economic benefit, too. It's good for our community to, to reintegrate women into active working society. And so during that eight weeks, what the $5,000 is basically subsidizing Mm -hmm. is an opportunity, um, a a space for her to to have money to live on Mm -hmm. while she is learning skills for living and working. And hopefully at the end of that eight weeks, she can gain employment in a more permanent situation. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's what we're seeing now. I mean, that's what we're seeing now with our women, whether it's through Hillcrest or sometimes they have to work at fast food for a little while before they find the job that they want. But that's okay. You know, it's a start. You know, it's a blast knowing they went out and fought to get a job. I mean, I, I was in the office when one of our women got hired by Magnolia 
one of our women got hired by Chick-fil-A. They had gone through the interview. We didn't do it for them. They had filled out the application. We helped some of them do that. We didn't do it for them, though. And then they got the satisfaction of when they got the call. You got the job. They immediately came to JSL, and they walked in with grinned, you know, smile ear to ear, and they did it. And, you know, I'm thinking I can see one woman who just eight weeks before was, you know, in another city in a drug rehab, not knowing what was next. It was just it's just a beautiful picture. of. Okay, now, do you have any employers that are formal partners supporting the access program? I don't think that we've got corporate sponsors supporting access not supporting access specifically they support jsl okay i'm assuming that you would love to have that oh yeah in other words you have an employer say look i want to get engaged at somewhere in the process wherever you recommend to interview the people that you have and i hope to to hire one out of every group at least absolutely yeah that would be incredible and to have that kind of partnership would really allow a lot of sustainability in uh-huh. our program. And so why do we not have an, any employers doing that right now? I don't know, but let's call for, <laughs> call them forth. Are you, are you asking? We are asking. We need corporate sponsors okay. to sponsor one to two women and then guarantee her an interview. Okay. Just and give her an interview. Just Okay. So give her an interview. You, all you're asking, you're not even asking for a job. You're not asking for an interview. We, because we want her to earn it. the job. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, we're not going to do it for her, and we're not going to say that she's she's perfect and going to be a perfect fit for the job that you're needing, but we're saying give her an interview. Yeah. And, and why should the employer do this? Because it's helping the economy, and it's helping create a social impact, and because Jesus said to love. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Switch though all the cards out. Whether you're pro-economy, pro-social impact, or pro-Jesus, you need to give. Amen. <laughs> That's most anybody, I would think. <laughs> All right. Um, you mentioned the fundraiser. Is there any other ways that people can get involved and help beyond what we've already talked about? Yeah. I mean, you, you can give money, give money, give money. Follow us on social media. Yeah. Repost the things that we repost. We do a lot of educational posts that whether you're following Lovely Enterprises, which is our social enterprise, shop at Lovely. Come see us at 1500 Columbus. We've got, always got new products um, there for you to look at that increase awareness. Uh, one of our shirts that made it all the way to Hollywood with an actress who worked for Oprah and did a double as, with Reese Witherspoon. She wore our Not an Object shirt. That's one of our... We had no idea the whole movement was coming. And Brett actually came up with the shirt. He said, we need a t-shirt that says not an object for women to wear. Hmm. And, and so we said, okay, that's, that sounds good. And we did it. And then it's like then our me biggest too seller. Starts, yeah. And then me too starts. So and we're people like, started yes, latching on that shirt. Right. It. I mean, when I came up with the idea, it was, I was thinking about our women in the club going, you know, thinking about those baseball coaches, right? They're not objects. Right. So let's come up with a shirt. But anyway, it's yeah. kind of taking cool. ahead of your time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. One, one thing that popped in my mind, you know, we were maybe dumping on the employers a little bit there, but uh, I, I think what a great opportunity for a local church oh, to come in as a financial sponsor at minimum for yes. $5,000 during this transitional period. And we have several churches that have done that. Yes. All right. That's yes. fantastic. I will say that 
churches in our community have been very supportive. We would love, though, to even diversify into more churches ecumenically and and into different um, ethnicities as well, so ethnic churches, black church, Hispanic church, mm-hmm. so where we can come and really educate like what Jesus Said Love is doing, because um, we serve a diverse population, yeah. you know? Well, I'm just thinking about how many things that the local church could bring to the table. You've got uh, the financial, you've got the alliance, yes. um, you've got the spiritual. Spiritual. Right. Uh, I know that y'all uh, have some type of uh, Bible study that y'all do during your eight weeks, don't you? Absolutely. There's a spiritual component. So they, they learn contemplative prayer, and then they also learn Bible. Okay. Like, we literally go through the Gospels with them. Okay. All right. You mentioned Lovely. What is Lovely? Lovely is the social enterprise of Jesus Said Love, and it's aimed at reducing recidivism into the sex trade by giving living wage jobs or providing microloans for women who are entrepreneurial, like Brett was saying. So we have a storefront where they also, it's kind of a workshop. We uh, wholesale some upcycled leather jewelry to Magnolia. So you can buy our earrings at Magnolia or you can buy them at 1500 Columbus. We do awareness apparel. We do candles. uh, We have some hand lettering uh, postcards and things like that that go on. And uh, we're always trying to develop and partner with our women to see what kind of products they want to create. Mm -hmm. So if that did really well, it would also help the ministry. Yeah, because we do pop-up shows. So usually what we do in our other cities is we'll do an event, like a a woman's event or a church event, where we'll talk about the mission and vision of JSL, but then they'll get to shop at our pop-up shop. Mm. So they get to support the vision of JSL by buying really ethically you know, sourced and stylish things. So it's a win-win there. And you mentioned the fundraiser. When is that? April 23rd, Wild Torch, Hippodrome Theater. It is a night unlike anything you've ever experienced. Oh, tell me about it. <laughs> so for the longest, you know, we kept, we were told, you guys got to do a fundraiser. And we, you, we don't, we're not really fundraiser kind of people, and at least in that context. And we said, okay, if we're going to do this, it's got to be, we got, we have to figure out how to make the commercial sex industry available, if you will, to people of means. Or just demystified. Yeah. And so we decided the arts are how we do that. Mm -hmm. So we basically bring people to the Hippodrome and we gently... Rock their world. Rock their world. (laughs) (laughs) And it's been a beautiful thing. So we incorporate dance and the fine arts and music to tell the stories of our women. Mm -hmm. And so this year will be our fourth year to do it. It's just an elegant evening. Uh, there's, you know, from the, from the dinners, from the VIP, the VIPs, you know, get dinner and it's, it's an exquisite sort of experience. It's not just your regular old rubber chicken fried steak. And then everybody moves over to the Hippodrome and we know how beautiful that is. And, you know, it was this beautiful old place that then kind of fell apart. And then, you know, the Turners came in and breathed life into that. Even the building is representative of what we're trying to do. And so, it's just a great evening. Yeah, I mean, it's really cool. We we said if we're going to do this fundraiser kind of idea, this thing once a year, we want it to be an experience because we don't just want to raise money. We really don't. We want people's hearts and minds to change. So we wanted them to have an encounter, an experience of our women and with God that makes them look at everything differently. And how do I get tickets? You can go to wildtorch.com. We, there's tables available. There's seats available. 
There's sponsorships available, anything you can think of. And if you want to buy a table, but you don't want to fill it, we'll fill it for you. We're happy <laughs> to just um, use that sponsorship to get other people there who need to hear about the mission. One of the mission. questions we get a lot is, why do you call it Wild Torch? Because what does that have to do with your branding, if you will? We had a we received a handwritten letter from a donor a couple of years ago, and she was just thanking us of getting to be a part of JSL. And she was wearing our shirt in the airport, was, and, and and so she's the line was, um, "I love the wild torch that you guys carry." And I looked at Emily when we, when we got it. I said, "We need to save that for something." I don't know if that's like a song it. lyric or is that this or that. Well, turns out it became the name of our fundraiser, and it's because all of us have a wild torch to carry whatever that is and you get to decide what that is and so we invite everyone who comes to wild torch to try to figure that out but while they're figuring it out come carry a wild torch with us as we change the world is it kind of like mm. not hiding your light under a bushel type absolutely of thing? we've we sent that we, we've written that into one of the songs the wild torch song which you can get on itunes as well if you search brett and emily mills you can hear songs that we sing at Wild Torch and the music that we've written, and we use that in one of our songs. You know, one of these days we're gonna we're gonna persuade the Hippodrome to let us have fire on stage. Yeah, we're trying <laughs> to get pyrotechnics involved. We we have only been able to have it outside. Something about it's a historical well, building. Well, you know, or something. The, the very first Hippodrome. This is the the second incarnation. The first one did burn down. Yes, oh. I did so, know that. I mean, there I, may be a, that was years ago. That, that may be technology's <laughs> better today. I mean, I don't think I knew that. How prophetic. <laughs> Yeah. And here we come with Wild, Wild Torch. Torch. Yeah. <laughs> They're scared of us. <laughs> Would you guys be willing for us to maybe take that song and put it at the end of the podcast for people to listen oh, to? Yeah. Yeah. We'd Absolutely. love that. Okay. Yeah. So we'll include that in this podcast. So keep listening and we'll play that song Perfect. for you guys to hear. This yeah, Thanks fun. for coming in, guys. I really hope people know more about your ministry and we can help you out. Yeah, Thank thanks you. Thanks for having us. Thanks for all you guys do. It's really incredible. Well, we're going to do more, hopefully.
Thanks for listening to the Charity Champions podcast. If you're listening on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, please take a moment to rate and review us. This helps our podcast reach more listeners. Have a charity you'd like to nominate for next season? Visit charitychampionsforlife.com and find the nominate button at the top of the page. You can also find more information on this podcast and all our charity champions at charitychampionsforlife.com. We'll see you next time. <laughs> <laughs>